So if you would, please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking over verses 19 through 25 this morning. Well, as you are turning there, I want to say a few words since we are jumping into the middle of the book of Hebrews, namely that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers uh, who were tempted of turning back to the Old Testament shadows and types. Uh, They were looking to turn away from Christ and to go back to their old ways. And the author is up to this point to where uh, we come this morning in chapter 10. The author is really setting forth Christ. He's setting forth Christ um, in his office of priest, basically his priestly office, um, above all of his other offices. We're really seeing the great high priest of the church, and he's going through these Old Testament shadows and types to really show us that they pointed to the promised Redeemer, the promised Messiah. Um, I'll say a little bit more in my introduction about that, but if you have uh, turned to Hebrews chapter 10, Let us hear now the word of the Lord, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter in the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, Lord, we do truly thank you for your word. Lord, you have not left us without. You have saw fit to give us all that we need that pertains to this life and godliness, to our salvation, and to the call to glorify you in all that we do. Lord, we ask now that you would bless this time of the opening of your word. That you would bless us in in not only the hearing, but the receiving of this word. Lord, let it not just pass through, but let it be applied to our hearts. That we may grow more and more in our love for your son. Lord, bless this time now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, dear congregation, one of the things that is most striking as we work our way through the Holy Scriptures is the peace that we see that comes to the believer. We can start in Genesis 1 and really look to see that in the midst of the the first sin, the sin in Adam and Eve, And we see that they go and they hide themselves from the Lord. They're scared. But then the Lord comes to them. And yes, there is a a rebuke there. But if we ultimately look through, the Lord provides for them a covering. What peace they may have felt. We can think about Noah in the time of the flood. If we move a little bit more uh, through the scriptures, we can think about Noah and how Noah must have had peace when God came to him and, and, and delivered him through the flood. We can think about Abraham and all of the patriarchs. We can think about Joseph when he is sold into slavery and, and pretty much cast out by his brothers of the peace he must felt when he communed with the Lord. One of my favorites, and we'll actually end on this in our conclusion, is David. Look at the life of King David. David went through so much affliction and turmoil and sin, but yet he had peace with God. 
something we've been studying at Black Forest Church and, and Pastor Joseph has been going through is has been the book of Acts and it's really striking to me in the book of Acts how much peace this early church had. I mean, it's brand new. Christ had just uh, ascended into heaven. The apostles are, are preaching this gospel. Many are being converted, but through their conversions, they're also facing much persecution. We can think about Stephen. Stephen is stoned. And I, what's particular to me about this, in the midst of being persecuted and he's being riled and, and beaten and mocked and stoned, Stephen can look up. He can look up and gaze into the heavens to the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's comforted. Another one in the book of Acts that I think is very striking is Peter in chapter 12. Familiar with the chapter, James had just been martyred. Uh, King Herod had put James to death, and Peter was arrested for the very same things. And so Peter must be, you've got to think of where Peter's at. Peter must be thinking, well, this is me. This is going to happen to me next. I'm, I'm awaiting my death. But in chapter 12, if we look, we find Peter. He's chained to two guards. He's chained in between two guards, and he's fast asleep. He's fast asleep. This is, this is important because when we see this, an angel actually comes and a bright light is shown. And that bright light doesn't wake Peter up. He actually has to purge or, or, or poke or prod Peter to wake him up. What peace must Peter have felt in that moment when he knows that his life is about to be forfeited by King Herod? What peace must he have had knowing that one that, that in moments or in days he would be with the Lord Jesus Christ. I also think a few more chapters later we see in, in the book of Acts that the believers are, are pushed out, they're kind of dispersed. And yet in the midst of losing everything that they have, being cast out from their homes, kind of being left destitute, they still rejoice in the Lord God. What peace must they have had? And how do we obtain that peace? How do we get that same peace? Because in our lives, there's so much that would take us from the Lord. There's so much that would take us from the Lord. We can look around and see how things are going in our societies. We can look at the cost of living today. It's so high, it's hard for a lot of us to get by. We have a lot of struggles, afflictions. There's opposition to even us and our faith for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have our own sins that seek to take and draw us away from the Lord. We feel that because uh, we may not be at the level of perfection we ought to be, that somehow that hinders us completely from the Lord. So there's so many things that would take that true peace away from our lives. How is it that in those situations that I mentioned, in the life of the patriarchs in the life of David, in the life of Stephen, in the life of Peter, in the life of the early church, how is it that they obtained this peace? How is it that they got this? And, and that's where, as we come to this section in the book of Hebrews, we, we see that we are opening up to, as I've already mentioned, the author is exhorting his readers to not turn back. He's exhorting them to not turn back to these Old Testament shadows and types. But he's telling them to stand firm in the faith in the midst of the trials that they're enduring. And how did he do this? This is that key to peace. He did this by setting forth the supremacy of Christ over all things. He sets forth the fullness of God's redemption in him as the mediator of the new covenant. And he sets forth for us and for them the glorious reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ to strengthen his hearers. And that's the theme that I, I want to consider for us this morning is, is peace in the glorious reality. Peace in the glorious reality. And I want to look at this theme under two particulars this morning. I want to look at it first under 
the glorious reality itself. And then second, I want to look at our responsibilities to this glorious reality. So first, the glorious reality itself. Second, our responsibilities to this glorious reality. Well, if you would, uh, turn back or look again with me uh, at verses 19 and 21 through 21. Again, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, we see here that he's giving us a summary. That's why it says, therefore, or some translations uh, might use something different, but he says, therefore, brothers, therefore, because of everything that I have mentioned to you in the previous, for us, chapters, therefore, because of this, we have confidence. As I've already mentioned in, in the first ten and a half chapters of this book, he's setting forth the beauty, majesty, and brilliance of Christ. He's setting forth Jesus Christ in his person. And then he's focusing on the office of Jesus or the office of high priest, his priesthood office. And it's there now where we, we see this summary given to us here that we start reading that we are to have confidence. We're to have confidence to enter into the holy places. And we do this by the blood of Jesus. It says here that we do this by a new and living way. This language is, trying, is drawing our minds back to these Old Testament shadows and types. It's, it's calling us back to these covenant, old covenant forms of worship. And, and it sets them in contrast to the new. So if you're familiar in the Old Testament, had a lot of sacrifices, the burning of incense, um, the showbread, all of these aspects, all of these, these points, they pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this language is used for here, this new and living way that he opened up for us. It's, it's used to help us contrast that Old Testament form of worship for what we now have in the new. As these shadows and types that pointed you to the greater reality that you have fulfilled in Christ. So we see in our text here that it is Christ who has entered into the holy places. It is Christ, our high priest, who has entered into for us into the presence of God. In our call to worship this morning, we were reminded that Christ had sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Christ sat down. He was ruling and reigning. If we were to turn to chapter 414 in this book, we would see that Christ had passed through the heavens. Or in chapter 8, verse 1, we see that same phrase as, as, as chapter 1 of this book, uh, where it says, Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Or again, chapter 9, verse 12, he says, He's entered once for all into the holy places. And in verse 24 of that same chapter, he says, He is entered not, in, not into holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself. He's entered into heaven itself. And he has done this to appear in the presence of God on your behalf. He's done this to enter into the presence of God on your behalf. Christ is in the holy places, and he's provided access for you to draw near to God through him. This is important because as we contrast with these Old Testament shadows of types, they had to go through this process of bringing sacrifices to be accepted. They had to bring the sacrifices to the priests and offer them up to be acceptable to God. And they had to do this not once, but continually. And so this shows us here in our text, and, and as he's summarizing this and showing us that we have confidence to enter into this holy place because of Christ, he's showing us that we don't have to go through the continual mediation of an earthly priest. We need not to have to bring continual offerings and, and sacrifices for our salvation. We have Christ. We have access through Jesus 
It is Christ who has entered in once for all, for all into the holy places. And he has not done this by the blood of bulls or goats. He's done this by his own precious blood. This secures our redemption. This secures our redemption. It's by the blood of Jesus. It's by his death on the cross, his sacrifice for sins, that we have access into the presence of God. It's only through him. John 14, 6 tells us that Jesus himself tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. It's only through Christ. It's only by his blood and by this new and living way that we see here in the text. text goes on, and I, I want us to see this, uh, to tell us that uh, and it refers to this new and living way that, that we come through. This sets again in contrary to the old. We don't have to, again, go through those shadows and types, but we come through Christ. And it shows us here in the text that it mentions here that Christ, through his flesh, or through the curtain, that is through his flesh. It's important that we see this. There's no more curtain that is hindering us from entering into the presence of God. Christ's body has been broken and torn just as the curtain was broken and torn so that we may have full access into the throne room of God. And it's important because that veil distanced the people of God. That veil distanced the Old Testament people of God to a certain degree from having communion with him. For us, that veil through Christ has been torn. And it's made a way for us into the most holy place. I can't say this enough, and I, I, I'm being repetitive for, for a reason here. This is by the shedding of Christ's blood. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we enter into this place. It is because Christ is our great high priest. It is because of the the beauty and the majesty of the work of Christ that we, we can have peace with God, that we can be brought into the throne room of God. It is through him and him alone. It is through him and him alone that we freely come to and draw near to God. And it's important, again, because we need to establish this because the text begins with saying we have confidence. We have confidence. We have confidence to enter in. You have confidence. You have boldness. You have freeness of access as well as assurance of Christ to draw near to the signified reality. And I know oftentimes we are timid. Oftentimes it feels like we don't have confidence or boldness. The text tells us we have confidence, and it's very explicit. The work of Christ is what we have confidence. It's the work of Jesus Christ that is our confidence. It's not ourselves. It's not anything wrought in us. Our confidence comes solely from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need not to be apprehensive about this. You need not to be apprehensive. You need not to fear your doubts Whatever may come your way, whatever life may throw, throw at you, whatever season you're going through, even if, if, if sin is, is hindering you, you do not trust in yourself. You have confidence in the reality of Jesus Christ. That is your assurance to enter into this high place, into these holy places. It's through your great high priest. It's through your great high priest. It's through his blood. It's through the new covenant, a new and living way, the grace of God in, in giving you his son and uniting you to him by his Holy Spirit and setting his law and his spirit inside of you. That, that is that new and living way in which you have confidence to draw near to God. The text moves on. It says we have a great high priest. It actually says since we have a great high priest over the house of God. We are 
then to draw near. This is where I want to turn from the glorious reality of Jesus Christ, the glorious reality of the new covenant that we have in and through him, through the, the shedding of his blood. But I want to turn to our responsibilities to this glorious reality. We, since we have this high priest, since we have this glorious reality that Christ is our high priest, we are now called to do something. Verse 22 says, let us draw near. The author is using that phrase, let us, to exhort us. He's actually now calling us to application. And I wish I could have went through the entire book of Hebrews, but since you have all of those things, all of those great realities that I have proclaimed to you, from beginning until this point, since you have that, since Jesus Christ is in and above all things, now do this. He says, let us draw here near with a true heart, a true heart. And, and, and I want to say this too, because we have all of this doctrine in this book set before us. And the glorious thing about doctrine or teaching is not only that it's true, that's very important. I don't want to make that seem like it's not important for us. At any point, doctrine is true. But the, the glorious thing about it is that we are to respond to teaching. We are to respond towards doctrine. So as the author moves from this glorious reality and now calling us to consider and to uh, apply this glorious reality, this glorious doctrine, we need to see that it's in grace and in love. So he's saying, let us, let us draw near. It's the first exhortation we see here in the text. And I want you to see that this is very warm and endearing, endearing language. It's very warm and endearing language. We are to draw near to God. That is that we are to come close to him or to draw close to him. We are to be in close communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ with the triune God. We're to be in communion with him. Kids, I want you to think of, of it like this. I, I oftentimes think of uh, when I was little, when I was away from my parents, and I can give you an illustration. I grew up in, in southern Indiana, and we lived out in the middle of cornfields and wheat fields, and there were times in my life that we would go into, not a big city, but Evansville, and we'd go to a mall. We would be in the shopping store, and I would be away from my, I would be just being a kid, looking at everything, working around, uh, and then I would get lost. I'd look up, and I'd wonder where my, my parents were, where my mom was. I'd begin to panic, and I'd, I'd begin to feel all of this fear and panic, and I'm wondering, and I'm looking around, and I'm frantically searching. And then I would see my mom, and I would run up to her, and I would hug her in tears, and I would draw near and kids, I want you to see that because here for us, that's what the text is calling us to do, to run up and to draw near by pulling in close to Jesus Christ. But for all of us in the room, we can look at this as being away from loved ones. And we are away from our family members or even friends from a long period of time. One of the first things we do is we run up and give them a big hug and we draw them in close. And that is what the author of Hebrews is calling us to do here. He's calling us to draw near to God. And that is coming in close and bringing God close near to us. And we need to see that. We are to draw near to the Lord. We are to come to him and embrace him. And, his, and we do this by his word and through prayer. So I got to ask the question, are you doing this? Are you drawing near? Are you daily attending to God's word? Are you drawing near to God through your private prayers and communion with him? Are you doing this? Are you making time for the Lord in your life? Are you doing this in your families through family worship? Those are questions you have to ask yourself. And this is important because we cannot belong to Christ at a distance. We cannot belong to Christ at a distance. It will not sustain. Our, our profession should not be just a mere confession or a knowledge of the truth. Rather, it should be a daily, continual embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to ask yourself that question. Are you doing those things? Are you daily attending to the Word? 
Are you daily attending to prayer? Are you seeking to, to weekly attend the worship of God and the fellowship of the saints? Well, the text moves on as we are to draw near. We're to do this with a true heart. We're to do it with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This true heart is, as the text states, is the text states for us, a heart that has been sprinkled from an evil conscience and a body that is washed with pure water. This is a heart that has been united to and identified with Christ. This is a heart that has been cleansed from the filth of sin. And unbelief. It's washed in preparation to our approach to God. So the text says we need to do this. We need to make sure that we have come to Jesus, that we have have accepted or, or, or embraced that, that calling that he has given us in our lives and came to the Lord. So we're to do it with a true heart. And we're to do it with a full assurance of faith. I want to make a distinction, a subtle distinction here, because he says a full assurance of faith, and your minds might go to assurance of your salvation. And I would say certainly that that's a fruit of it, because when we look at our justification and our adoption and our sanctification, we would see the assurance of salvation being an accompanying benefit of that. But I don't believe that is what the author has in mind for us here, is, is a specific assurance of salvation. Rather, he says the assurance of our faith. It is speaking of an assurance or confidence in the work of Christ. Are you assured of the work of Christ? So for us to draw near to God, we must be assured of his work on the cross, in his life, and in his death. Are we assured of that work? Are we assured that Christ is that high priest that has shed his blood and to provide the forgiveness of sins? and access of fellowship and communion with God? Are we assured of that Christ? Are we assured of him? And what it's also trying to tell us to do here in the text, this assurance of faith, is our assurance isn't in ourselves. It's not in what we have done or what we, what we did or what we didn't do. It's not in our righteousness or in our unrighteousness. It's not in how many sins we've committed no, that's not what we look to. We look to Christ for our salvation in Christ alone. So the assurance of faith here is referring to the assurance of Christ. Are we assured of this teaching? Are we assured and confident that I need not to look to any other except that one great and glorious high priest? So we're to draw near with a true heart and a full assurance faith, fully convinced of the work of Jesus Christ, knowing that he is more than sufficient to save us from our sins. And I will add this, there is truly for us no assurance of drawing near if there is no confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no assurance of drawing near to God if there is no assurance or confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you are here today, and you're not assured, I pray that you would attend to the scripture, that you would attend to the preaching that you receive week in and week out to diligently know this Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's solely through him that we are able to draw near. But as we Move forward, our next exhortation we see is in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Let us hold fast. So we're called to draw near to God. Now we're called to hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The text tells us, let us hold fast. Let us retain. Again, we can look to and, and think about this as if you've ever been rock climbing wherever climbed up to something that's your high, climbing up a ladder. When you're climbing, you're gripping, you're holding on tight. You're to retain that. You can also appeal again to you kids as you've learned to ride your bicycles. At first, you cling to those handlebars. You don't want to let go because you feel safe. 
what he means by saying, hold fast. Let us hold fast. Before I continue on, I want to set forth that it's, we hold fast because we are held fast. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is our sure anchor. Christ also tells us in, in the book of John that all that the Father gives him, he will by no means lose none. So we need to understand as we hold fast to God that we are being held fast by him. But still the, the call is there, the exhortation is there. We are to hold fast. And what are we to hold fast to? Our profession. Our profession. Again, I can appeal to all of, all of you here have made that profession. Many of you have came up and and as you have taken your vows of membership, of communicant membership, you've professed your faith before this congregation or maybe another congregation. And then you're professing your faith before the world around about you, your co-workers, uh, your friends. You're to hold fast to that profession no matter what comes your way. And right now in our day and age, though I think it's going to get increasingly increasingly more difficult. In our day and age, we live in a, a sense of worldly peace. We don't face much persecution or, or, or trials that, are, 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 that tempt us to let go of that profession. But we need to know that there might come a day, like our brothers and sisters around about this globe, that this might become a little more applicable to us. Because right now it may seem easy to hold fast to a profession, to say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. But the day may come that it gets more and more increasingly. So the author, as he's speaking to these, these Jewish believers who are being kind of pushed out because they're forsaking Judaism and they're turning to Christianity, they're kind of being outcast and pushed aside, he's telling them, and they're facing persecutions and being shunned out of their homes, he's telling them, hold fast. Hold fast to your profession of faith. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. The reason we hold fast, again, is not in and of ourselves. The reason we hold fast is because the text tells us he who promised is faithful. You can think about this in church history. Think about many of the martyrs, many of those who would give up their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they died in horrific ways. Yet until their death, they held fast that profession because they knew, knew he who promised was faithful. He who promised was faithful. I think as we looked at the introduction, we saw the peace that they had. They knew that glorious reality. They looked to the promises in the Old Testament and to the New Testament. They looked back to the promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ and they knew that glorious reality that he who promised was faithful, and they endured much suffering and much, much persecution, much famine, much death. They, they faced so much in opposition of their faith, yet they held fast. And so we need to look to them. We need to look to them as examples for us to know, to see, that even in the midst of their lives, God was faithful. But when we look at our lives, we know that he who promised is faithful and true. So we're to hold fast, again, grip tightly to these promises and to this profession. We're to not let go, knowing that he who has us in his hands will. And then lastly, I want to look at verses 24 and 25 says there in the text, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So our third exhortation that we see here is to not neglect the meeting, or to stir up one another and, and to not neglect the meeting. But actually say our third and fourth exhortation here is to stir one another up to good works and not neglect the meeting of the saints. Before we, we get there, I want you to see, and I hope you've been seeing this, there's an organic relationship for us 
between the work of Christ, our individual salvation, and the existence of the corporate body. There is an organic relationship. We're following through the text. We've given this glorious reality, and we know that we have confidence to enter in because of Jesus Christ. This work that he has done for us to give us the forgiveness of sins and communion with God. That applies to our individual salvation, but we exist inside this body. And that's why this third and fourth exhortation are so important. We do not do Christianity on our own. We're called to stimulate and motivate others to good works. And we do this by our prayers. And I got I to gotta ask, when you're, you're stirring others up to good works, are you praying for them? Are you, are you going to God in prayer? And I know I'm guilty of, of not writing things down sometimes and saying, hey, I will pray for you. And sadly, that becomes a mere statement to them at that moment, but that does not actually get fulfilled in practice at home or in another time. We need to be diligently in praying for the saints because in praying for them, we're stirring them up to good works, to love and to good works. Are we teaching them? There's someone in your life right now that you are, are working with through a level of discipleship. Are you working with someone in your life to stir them up to love and good works? That may be a younger person in the congregation, a friend or a co-worker at work, or someone that you have been uh, proclaiming and, and evangelizing to. Are you teaching? There's someone in your life that you're seeking to to grow them up and teach them in the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you setting an example? I feel like sometimes this is the hardest one for us. When we are exhorted to, to stir someone up in love and good works, we, we forget that we're an example. Our lives are daily. We're bearing the name of Christ. Our lives are daily being examined. So are we an example to others that can they can look to us and say, I see Christ working in him, and that stirs up in them this love and good works to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? And then the text moves on with the, the fourth exhortation here. That we're not to neglect the meeting together. We're not to neglect the meeting of saints And I know that for many of us, it might not be that, well, I'm here every Sunday. And, and if you're not coming, I will exhort you that we need to make it a practice to not make excuses. I understand today there's a lot of snow and it's hard to get into work. This is a, a general excuse, but sometimes we might make excuses of why we don't want to go to church today. But we need not do that. We need not to neglect this. But I would say, even if you are attending weekly, you can still be neglecting the meeting together. Are you involved? Are you putting yourself out there, letting people get to know you and getting to know them? Because you can't stir them up in good works if you come and just come here and leave. You cannot neglect this meeting even by just checking out once you're in here. And so we're exhorted to that. We're exhorted to stir one another up in good love and good works. We're exhorted to be involved. We're exhorted to be constantly praying and teaching others the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. We're to be involved in teaching these glorious realities. And we're not to neglect this day or to come prepared for this day, to see it as something that is joyful. It's meant to build us up and encourage us, and it gives us so much strength to make it through the next week until we can be here again with the saints of God. There's no better place to be, to, to be restored and refreshed. So we cannot neglect this meeting together. We need to encourage one another. That's the text says. We need to be constantly encouraging one another in their walk with the Lord. And the text ends here by saying, the more and more as the day draws near, 
we know, as Scripture tells us, we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when Christ is going to return. So the exhortation is to be adamantly and consistently or persistently involved in this work. Stirring one another up, praying for one another, teaching one another. And I know it's always hard when we come to a text that it's easy for me, but it's hard for us because the application is given to us here and it confronts us. And as I mentioned peace early on in my introduction, sometimes it's hard to feel like we can attain that level of peace. Because again, when we look at all of these, when now you're calling me to draw near, you're calling me to daily go to the word and read the word and to pray and to make time for prayer and family worship. My life is busy. And there's no peace in my life. Or you don't understand the sins that I'm committing and I want to repent so badly, but I'm in a vice. I'm in a vice. You don't understand. I have no peace. Now you're calling me to do these things. We need not to forget the glorious reality. We need not to forget the glorious reality. The saints that I read earlier or talked about earlier in my introduction, they were not perfect. We often look at them as perfect. We often look at the scriptures and say, well, I'm not Peter, or I'm not Paul, and I'm not David. Well, you might be closer than you think. And so I want to conclude here by looking at David, because David understood this glorious reality. We could take any portion or period of the life of David, or I could, to make this point. But I want to take specifically David in chapter or in Second Samuel chapter twelve. And if you're familiar with your references, you'll know that in Second Samuel chapter eleven, David committed a heinous sin. A heinous sin, and it wasn't just one sin. We often only focus on the one sin, but the sin started with David being lazy. David decided I'm not going to go out to battle. I'm just going to let my army go and do it. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to relax. And in his relaxation, he's on a roof. He sees the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and his eyes are set upon her. And this is, as we know, when, um, as we, we know how it continues on, David continues to lust after he calls Uriah, or Bathsheba into his home and he commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And as the text goes on, David's starting to fear. And so he calls Uriah back. He tries to get Uriah drunk. He calls the commander of his army, says, send Uriah back. And he tries to get Uriah to lay with his wife so he could cover up a sin. So David's being deceitful. So he calls Uriah back. And he can't get Uriah to do it. And I, I love Uriah here because Uriah, if you're familiar with the text, Uriah is not a Jew. Uriah is faithful. He knows that he should be out there with the Lord's army on the battlefield and wants to go back. So he, he doesn't lay with his wife, and David tries to get him drunk. And, and Uriah still, he sleeps at the door, and he just wants to go back. So finally, David writes a letter to his commander. And this is Uriah's death letter. Uriah carries his own death letter back to the battlefield where David has Uriah killed. <coughs> All because he wants to cover up his sin. All because he wants to cover up his sin. I'm only making this point strong because I want you to understand the grace that comes after. David does all of this, and he goes on after Uriah dies, pretending as if nothing happened. We know through the Psalms that he, he had a lot of turmoil. Psalm 32 is evident of that. God's hand was heavy upon him. But it wasn't until Nathan rebuked David, well, he did this by a parable in, in 2 Samuel 12, where he comes and he gives him that parable of the uh, rich man who comes and steals the guy's lamb, and he asks David, what should be done to this man? And David said, that man shall surely die. And Nathan says, you are that man. And that breaks David. So David's in this broken estate. Because of his sin, 
And then Nathan says, there's a consequence. God has put away your sin. God has put away your sin, but your child shall die. That's what we read about in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, it says in verse 15, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And it's in this moment, and I want you to think about this as we think about peace, and we think about the situations of life, and we think about the glorious realities, and we think about all these exhortations. We look at David sitting here. David had just committed heinous sins, not just one sin, heinous sins. He had neglected his duties as a king. His sins, as he says himself in Psalm 51, are worthy of death. He experiences the grace of God, but now his child's going to die. Now he's afflicted. And we see as it continues on in 2 Samuel 12 through verse 16 and on, that David begins to seek the Lord on behalf of the child. It says that David fasted and, and he went in and he laid all night on the ground. And he's praying. And he's pleading with the Lord to save this child. Well, in verse 18 of 2 Samuel 12, we read that on the seventh day, the child dies. And it says there that the servants were actually afraid to go into David. They were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. And they did this because they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. So even the servants are watching David in this moment and they're scared. But David's perceptive. In verse 19, he says that they, he saw the servants whispering and he understood that his child was dead. He understood from their actions that this child was dead. So David asked, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Catch this. What does David do? He arose from the earth. He washed and anointed himself. He changes his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. A man, by everything I have said, has, in our earthly perspective, may have by have no what reason, what, what justifies you to go and do this. We might look at David in that regard, but David goes in and he worships God. He worships God in the midst of all of this. David himself might be doubting and the Lord's really saved me. Will he really save me? He's put all of this in my life. Throughout the course of my life, I can look back and see all of the opposition, all of the turmoil, all of the sin, and even all of the affliction that I have experienced. And David could be tempted to walk away, but David, no, he goes into the house of the Lord and worships. And in verse 22 comes one of the most striking statements, or 22 and 23. So they ask him what he's doing because David's now cleaned himself up. He's worshiping. He's eating again. He looks like he's moving on as nothing has happened. So his servant said, while the child was yet alive, or, or while the child was alive, you fasted and wept. When the child dies, you arose and you ate food. And David says this. While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And the most striking statement that shows us that David understood the glorious realities that were his in Jesus Christ is found right here in chapter 12, verse 23. I shall go to him. One day I shall go to him but he will not return to me. And I hope you caught that. Because David, in the midst of all of this sin, David, in the midst of all of this affliction and turmoil, and the death of his child, still could look to the Lord Jesus, well, look to the Lord, the promised Messiah, knowing that one day God would bring him through it all and bring him into glory. He says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David had faith in the promises of God. David had faith faith in the glorious realities that one day he would stand before that great high priest that would provide him access through his blood into the throne room of grace. David understood this. David understood this. 
I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David understood how important it was to draw near and to have confidence in that profession that he made, that he belonged to the Lord God. And David could confidently do this because of the work of God, because he knew the one who had promised him this was faithful and true. David could say these words. And David, when the time had passed, went back in and worshipped. And where did he go to worship the temple? He went back in and did not neglect the meeting together. David is a great example for us that when everything comes against us, when life throws all of its curveballs at us, when we are leading a life of sin that we need to turn and repent for, or repent from, David is an example for us of such great peace in these glorious realities. I'm not saying to imitate David in his sin, but I am saying to imitate David in his faith. Imitate David in his faith. We need to turn our eyes just as David did. And just as the author of Hebrews is calling us here, we need to turn our eyes and with confidence rest assuredly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to rest in his person and his work. We need not rest in anything in our lives but solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us now pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to a text, we just heard from your text, of this glorious reality, that Jesus Christ would enter into the throne room and provide access for us that we now are entering into. We are so thankful for him. We are so thankful that you have given us a high priest who has provided atonement for our sins, who has paid the full price and the wrath that we deserve. The Lord did not leave us there. He provides us access to come in and to have confidence to come in through his work to commune with you. What a great high priest we have over your house. Father, I do help or hope or pray that you would help us. Lord, as we are called in this text, we're exhorted to, to, to draw near to you, to hold fast, to stir one another up to good works. We're, we're called to not neglect the meeting that you by your spirit would enable us to do so. We in and of ourselves are so frail, but Lord, you are so strong. And as your word says, Lord, you are faithful and true. We need not fear. Lord, help us this day to grow, grow closer in our communion with you. Help us to abide in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask all of this in his precious and matchless name. Amen.